Let's pray together. Lord, the world is a crazy and chaotic place. Um, like Jesus said, human history would be riddled with wars and rumors of wars. And all of that hardship and difficulty is the result of our sin and our rebellion against you, our um, broken, evil, crooked human hearts. But we look to you and we see that you are a God who is faithful, in particular, faithful to your people. And so we thank you that in the midst of a crazy world, um, we have confidence in your goodness and your love for us and your tenderness towards us. And we give you praise for that. It does seem like an almost fruitless task to pray for peace in a world as broken as ours, but we are commanded in your word to pray for kings and rulers. And so we, we pray for those who have the power and authority to make decisions about nations going to war, and we pray that you would um, steer their hearts towards peace and reconciliation, that you would bring peace. And we thank you that as Christians, our hope is not in kings and nations that come and go and often fail and act foolishly, but our hope is in the Prince of Peace, Jesus, the beginning of this new creation, um, giving us hope for a resurrection from the dead and life everlasting and hope for transformed lives full of goodness and mercy and love and grace. And so, Lord, I pray that whatever goes on in the world, that you would bring peace to our hearts as our hope is in you. And I pray that as we look at your word this morning, that your spirit would make us wise, that what I teach would be in accordance with what your word declares, that you would minister to the hearts of your people, that you would challenge us in the ways that we need to be challenged so that we might repent and be zealous for you. And I pray that you would grow us and grow our love for you through this time that we share together. In Christ's name, amen. Well, like I said, we're continuing our little series here through uh, some of the parables of Jesus. And if you have your Bible, we're going to read Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 15. So I invite you to read along with me. Jesus also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning the master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. 
For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you've been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, sorry, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Don't miss verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Actually, Let's do 15 as well. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows what is in your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So obviously we have a parable here. And uh, fortunately, in this case, along with the story, the parable, we also get an explanation. And I'm thankful that at some points Jesus does this when he uses parables to teach. Um, It's actually somewhat common for him. Actually, this was one of the ways that rabbis would teach. They would tell a story and then they would give sort of the meaning of the story that they were communicating. And this is so that we don't end up making the wrong conclusion about the point that Jesus is actually trying to make. There's another place in your Bible where you can get an example of this. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells the parable of the sower. And then he follows that parable up with a teaching about what this parable means. And in the case of Luke 16, uh, I think this format is especially helpful because I think this is a challenging parable to understand. When you get to that part where it says Jesus or the master commended the the manager for what he did, uh, we might reach some wrong conclusions On the surface, it could appear as if Jesus is saying that this rich man is commending his servant for his dishonesty. And I don't actually think that's what Jesus has in mind. The explanation says that Jesus is not uh, telling us that we should be dishonest. Um, But we'll get there when we get down to verses 8 through 13. Before we do that, I want to just draw your attention to a couple things in the parable, okay? We see in verse 1 that Jesus is talking to his disciples. But if we get down to verse 14, which is why I had you read a little bit further, what we find there is that the Pharisees are listening in. And this was often the case when Jesus was teaching. He had the crowds that were interested in what he was saying. He had the disciples who were following him. And then he had the, or the Pharisees that were also sort of curious about uh, what he was saying. And we find there that they are specifically described as being lovers of money. And that's important because the implications of this parable are both directed ultimately at the Pharisees and they are also about the way that the Pharisees operate. So although Jesus is talking to his disciples here, he definitely intends for the Pharisees to overhear this parable so that he can challenge 
their love of money, which is the love they have above all other loves, even though they claim to be deep lovers of the God of Judaism. Next, we see in the manager a man who's really woefully corrupt. He's called before his boss because his boss figures out that uh, he's not been stewarding the resources of his master well, and he's told that his employment contract is being terminated, right? He's getting fired. And what is his first response? Does he show even a shred of concern or regret for the fact that his character is being called into question? Not at all, right? Do we see any sign of remorse? No, look at verse 3. All he cares about is the fact that he doesn't want to go do manual labor digging in the fields, and he doesn't want to stand on a street corner like a beggar pleading with people for money. What does he care about? He cares only about his own comfort, his own ego. That's all that he's upset about. Not the fact that he may have brought disgrace upon his master or that he acted unethically. And then his lack of character doesn't stop there. He's a crafty man. And so it do, the text doesn't even say that he went home and thought a couple of days. Like immediately this plan enters his mind for how he can make sure that his future is well provided for with further dishonesty. I think at this point it helps us to understand a little bit about culturally what's going on here in this system of buying and selling. What does it mean that this man is a manager of the rich man's possessions? So the master, the rich man, would pay his employee to sell his goods. So I think we can look at the dishonest manager as a kind of salesperson, kind of salesman. But if you know anything about Judaism, you know Jews were not permitted to charge interest when they sold goods. That's forbidden by the Mosaic law. So it was a common practice to actually inflate the cost of the goods by building in the interest to the sale. Okay, This is often how we see the Pharisees working technically obeying the law of Moses while actually their hearts are doing things that are opposed to what God commanded. And so they would build the interest into the principle. And what you have here is this kind of legal manipulation that the hard-hearted Pharisees were often so good at when it came to the law of Moses. In addition to that, you would have a manager like this who would often build into the sale a little bit of his own commission. So whatever the price of the good was, he's building his, his commission into it and then also some interest for his boss. And we see this in another place, the commission piece in the New Testament. Um, the Pharis- or, I'm sorry, the tax collectors were roundly hated by just about all of the Jews, the Pharisees in particular. And part of the reason is because as government contractors working for Rome, one of the ways that they made some additional money is they would take your tax bill, not accurately disclose to you the amount that you owed, add their own profit on top of your tax bill, and take from you, give to Rome what was due to Rome, and keep for themselves a slice of the pie. Okay? This is why the tax collectors are often lumped in with the sinners, not merely because they sold out to Rome, but because they were making a profit off of the people. 
And actually, if you want to hear something a little bit de depressing, uh, if you didn't already know, this is pretty much the economic system that we live in today. So I, I, just to like give you an example of this, I was doing some research. Uh, if you were to go and buy a $50,000 car, that $50,000 car costs about $34,000 to manufacture. Okay? When you go and then get a loan on that car, by the time that you are done paying that loan, you might end up paying something like $70,000, okay? Um, now, I'm not in auto manufacturing, so maybe I'm you know, a little bit off, but the fact of the matter is, when you purchase the final product, there have been all kinds of different things tacked onto that bill that are going to cost you much more than just a reasonable price for the good and the profit uh, that is reasonable for the company to make. Anyway, the reason why all this is important is because we see how dishonest this manager actually is in the details that Jesus gives to us in the parable. What we see in verse 6 is that the real cost of the goods here, the real cost of the oil that he sold, which was 100 measures, was actually only worth 50 measures, half of what he sold it for. In other words, even at half price, this man is still making a reasonable profit for his employer, the rich man. And then we see that the real cost of the wheat that he sold was actually only 80% of what he sold it for. And I want you to understand, these are not just arbitrary numbers, as if this guy's just making something up, or these aren't just numbers that Jesus throws in for no reason at all. What we are learning here is precisely what kind of shady business this man was engaging in. He's a crafty salesman. He's over overcharging for his prices and pocketing the excess, still providing quite a profit for his boss. Um, you know, before the internet, you might not know how much a hundred barrels of oil cost, right? You just trust the guy who's selling it to sell it to you for what is reasonable. So this explains kind of how this guy gets away with it. He has already taken his cut from the sale since the sale was over and above the cost of the goods to begin with. The rich man who owns the merchandise then won't even know that he is missing out on any money. Actually, he's not going to miss out on any money. He's still getting the full price of the goods, even though that price is suddenly reduced 50 or even 20%. So what you need to understand here is that actually this manager is not defrauding or swindling his master, although that might be how it appears to us at first glance. He's actually swindling the very people whose favor he is buying through this discount that he is offering to them. I mean, this guy is good, right? Like, if you want to take a class in unethical business behaviors, this would be the guy to take it from. These folks had so overpaid for the goods that they bought to begin with that now they think they're actually getting a discount when he cuts the price so significantly. And of course... They go along with it, right? None of them say, wait a second, hold on. How is it possible that you can get away with this? They're eager to have their debt reduced. And so they end up paying for their greed and dishonesty with their very own money. 
And they would never know because they didn't know what the original purchase price of the goods was. And now you can hopefully see kind of what's really going on here and why the rich man then actually commends this dishonest manager. What he did was absolutely wrong and unethical, but the way that he did it was brilliant. Everybody wins, or at least everybody thinks they win, right? The buyers think they end up getting a good discount on the goods that they bought. The master gets his profit still, and the salesman seems to also walk away with at least part of his commission. And he still gets his favors in the future. He bought favor from other dishonest people with their own money and walks away looking like he's the good guy. That's brilliant, actually. Now, I think halfway through verse 8 is where the parable kind of ends, and the second half of verse 8 is where we then get the explanation, the meaning of what's going on here. So I have three principles from this parable that I want to draw out for you, and I'm not going to go through them sort of in the verse order. I want to approach them kind of from easiest to understand to most difficult to understand so that hopefully you leave with maximum uh, recollection of what we talked about, okay? So the first principle is this. The little things reveal big things about our character. The little things reveal big things about our character. Look at verses 10 through 12. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? It's a pretty straightforward concept, I think. If you can be trusted with a little bit, then typically you're the kind of person who shows that they can be trusted with more. I would say that our character is often tested most in the small things, right? This is why you've probably heard me say again and again and again, jokingly, that I would gladly die for my wife, but I won't do the dishes for her. Right? Doesn't it show how much I love my wife when I'm willing to do the little things that, seeming, that seem to be irrelevant in the big scheme? But if you can't manage the little wealth, I'm joking, by the way, I would do dishes for my wife. <laughs> but if you can't manage the little things, particularly if you can't manage the very small responsibility that you've been given in this life, how do you think you will be able to stand the weight of glory that God is preparing for you in eternity? If the weight of your will here and now is crushing, how much more will it be when you have glory that resembles the glory of Christ himself? But you have to think about this for a second because from one view, it kind of doesn't make sense, right? Okay, so if I give my son Aiden $1 and he takes good care of it, does that automatically mean I should just give him 10,000 bucks because he's going to manage that well? I don't think so. I heard a story years ago about a church where uh, it started out small like Maricopa Springs. And in the beginning, there was a woman who was volunteering to handle sort of the finances and the deposits. And she did that faithfully for something like 20, 25 years. 
but the church grew over time, and those very small deposits eventually had large cash deposits that she was managing. And it ended up that she was uh, caught with several hundred thousand dollars in cash in her house. Because at some point along the way, she realized nobody was watching her and she could begin to siphon off a little bit here and a little bit there. The temptation became too great. Even though she was faithful with little, she ended up going wrong somewhere along the way. And that does happen, but look at it another way, okay? Tons of people who would never steal tens of thousands of dollars from a church would gladly walk away from an interaction with a cashier with wrong change, a couple dollars, and never go back in and say, hey, you gave me the wrong cash back. So while they would never sell their integrity for tens of thousands of dollars, they would actually sell their integrity for two or three dollars. And doesn't that say so much about their character? Often it's actually easy to have character in the big things in life because the consequences of getting caught are so much greater. That woman ended up in jail for years because of the fraud she committed. But you're not going to get caught if you walk away with two or three bucks from the grocery store. In the little things where the consequences seem ins insignificant, that's actually where we prove the kind of person that we really are. Plenty of men would never commit a big sin like engaging in an affair in violation of their wedding vows, but they would peek at porn on their cell phone as if it's no big deal. Plenty of women in this room probably would never cuss out their children or do that to their spouse in public, but they'll sit around the table over a cup of coffee with their friends and gossip and slander complain about their children and say awful things about their husband. Many people feel too financially unstable to give sacrificially to their church, but they'll go out at tax return season and buy a 75-inch TV and put it on a credit card and pay interest. Do you see? Most people would never assault somebody in public, but they'll get on Facebook or anonymously on Twitter and say all kinds of terrible things about people, and for whatever reason, they don't think that that's a problem. So you see what Jesus is getting at? The little things reveal so much about our character. Anyone can act like a good person when they know that all the eyes are upon them and the stakes are high, but few people have the real integrity and character that is necessary to do what is good and right when nobody will ever find out about the thing that they're doing in secret. And God sees, and God evaluates us, not based on what the public says about us, but based on what motivates us in our heart. Even if nobody else is paying attention, he cares about those little things. And those who are faithful, where it doesn't seem to matter much at all, God knows, are the people who will be faithful 
when things are really significant. There are people who will prove themselves in this life, being faithful with little, to be the kind of people who can handle the weight of righteousness forever, the glory of eternity with Jesus Christ. So, what do the little things reveal about your character? What do the secret thoughts or the hidden bank transactions or the unmanaged minutes or the unspoken feelings, what do those little things say about the kind of person you are? Is God pleased with who you are when it comes to the things that nobody else sees? The second principle is this. The heart always pursues what it treasures. The heart always pursues what it treasures. Do not deceive yourself in this. Look at verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We're going to talk specifically about money because that's what Jesus is teaching on here, but the simple truth is, You chase what you love. Don't kid yourself into thinking that you don't make the choices that you make. You do what you desire. Now, when it comes to money, there's nothing inherently wrong with money. If Elon Musk or Bill Gates were a Christian, none of us could condemn them simply for the fact that they have lots of money. There's nothing wrong with wealth in and of itself. But the thing that your heart pursues is the thing that your heart most deeply desires. Think about it from sort of the perspective of romance. I think this can be helpful. Uh, Sixth grade, there was some girl who had a crush on me. And uh, it really wasn't hard for me to avoid her because I wasn't interested, right? Like, I didn't return the feelings. I didn't have to stop myself from pursuing her because I just didn't share that interest. Conversely, when I finally realized I loved my wife, Leanne, nothing could stop me from pursuing her, right? Because that became the desire of my heart. The heart is devoted to what it desires. And the fact of the matter is you cannot serve God in money because your heart will be devoted to one of those things, And it will be then ultimately opposed to the other thing. If you truly serve God and you're devoted to him, then when it comes to your budget and your finances and your planning for how you spend your money, many of those things that you choose to do are just irrelevant. It's not important to you. You could take the money, you could leave it. You see that you are simply a steward and it's God's and he's entrusted you with it. And you want to do what honors him because you serve him. You are devoted to him. He captivates your heart. And you would give up anything else for that treasure that you have in him. And that's really, I think, the point of verse 9. Use this wealth that you have, this unrighteous wealth, for eternal purposes. What other good is it? possibly to be used for? Nothing. And alternatively, if you serve money, then God is really irrelevant. 
if you serve money, then ultimately in the equation, God has to be removed. This is why many false teachers and church leaders who are really money-grubbing charlatans, when they become obsessed with money, they move the scriptures to the side. Why? Because the Bible is obviously an obstacle to what they desire, which is money. And if money is your master, then you've become its slave. But if God is your master, then you are a child and an heir of his kingdom. You have all of the riches of Christ Jesus himself now and forevermore. And what could possibly compete with a wealth like that? Nothing. And this is precisely why God tells us to be generous and to give. Because the more that we give our money away, the more that we let go of it, the less that it enslaves us. That's why it's good for you as a Christian to be generous. The more that we serve God and we say, all of what I have is yours, you know what we actually find? The more free we become. And so either you love God and you understand that all of what you have is his to do with as he pleases, or you love money and you're a slave. It owns you and it rules you. But it's not, not possible to have it both ways. You cannot serve God and money because the heart always pursues what it truly treasures. That's how you've been made as a person. My third principle is this. Shrewdness is a virtue. Shrewdness is a virtue. Did you know that? That that's a teaching of the Bible. This is where things get a little bit weird though, so this is why I decided to save this for last. So hopefully you can hang in there with me till the end. Read verse 8 with me. It says, The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Now, without this verse connected to the parable that Jesus tells, we might reach the conclusion that Jesus is saying it's a virtuous thing to be dishonest like this manager was dishonest. But that's not the point. Jesus is lifting up this virtue of being shrewd. We as Christians are called to love our neighbors and love our enemies. That's true. We're even supposed to lay down our lives in serving one another. But nothing in Scripture suggests that we have to be easy prey for evil. That's not a teaching that Jesus gave us. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, that we should be wise as a serpent, but innocent as a dove. And I think the word shrewd kind of carries like a negative connotation. But actually, the dictionary definition says, having or showing sharp powers of judgment. That's a virtue. The master does not commend his manager for dishonesty, only for his sharp powers of judgment, twisted though they may have been used for his own benefit. And you know what I find interesting about this word shrewd? Uh, the Greek word that underlies this word shows up in another place in your Bible. It shows up at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. It's really just another word for wise. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus ends his teaching on the kingdom of God. And he says that a man who hears these words and does them is like a wise man. 
you could say, a shrewd man there. He is building his house on the solid ground of Jesus, not the shifting sands of the world. And he is to be commended for that because he is wise and committing himself to what Jesus taught. So according to Jesus, being shrewd is a virtue. It is good for us as Christians to have the spirit of wisdom and for the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened that we might have sharp powers of judgment as we live in an unrighteous world. And so here's the point. Here's what I think Jesus is getting at when he says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Have you noticed how deeply committed the pagans and unbelievers and godless people that you know are to their way of life? They are so committed, amazingly dedicated. The worldly people around us are often, actually, if we're honest, far more committed to their worldly ways than you and I, as Christians, are committed to the kingdom of God. And man, I could point this out in so many ways, but let me just mention a few examples for you to ponder. I would be willing to bet that some of us in this room spent more money on interest payments last year than we generously gave to God's kingdom. Are we more committed to the materialism of this world than we are to the everlasting things of God's kingdom? That's worth thinking about. I would guarantee that many of us in this room spent more time last week looking at screens than we did in prayer or worship or study of God's word. Are we more committed to entertainment than we are to the words of life and the adoration of our God who has redeemed us? I'm guessing many of us in this room care much more about what our boss thinks about our performance at work than we care about what God thinks of the things that are important to us. Are we more concerned about our reputation in the eyes of the world than we are about our reputation in the eyes of God? I bet many of us spent more time last week scrolling social media, engaging in inauthentic relationships than we did pursuing relationships with our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Are we more engaged with meaningless things than we are engaged in the things that God says are important? I would guess that many of us in this room have spent more time over the last week worrying about World War III and Israel and Palestine and Ukraine and chaos in the world than we have giving our hearts in trust and faith to Jesus being confident in his goodness over all of life and all of creation? Are we more anxious about the world than we are trusting in Christ? And I could go on. I think you get the picture. I don't need to. The worldly people around us, they give all of themselves to this endeavor 
of pursuing meaningless things. They labor hard to get ahead by any means necessary, while we Christians often think we can just sort of drift down the road of spirituality as if the things of God don't actually matter that much. And why shouldn't we be shrewd for the kingdom of God? Why shouldn't we operate this way? Why shouldn't we exploit all that God has given us for the glory of Jesus and the sake of his kingdom? If we would only give as much attention to eternity as we do to this world, I'm not even saying more, just as much attention to the things that God values as we do, like a shrewd man building his house on a rock. So shrewdness is a virtue. And let us use that to the glory of the king, that God might praise us for the way that we spend ourselves for him. Now, uh, maybe you don't believe me that shrewdness is a virtue. I want to actually connect that concept to the gospel as I close out our time together. Um, I, what I want you to see is, do you see how shrewd God was in orchestrating your salvation? It's really pretty awesome if you think about it. God is very clever, and he is deeply committed. Look, when man sinned against God, he rebelled against God. He denied God as the ultimate authority of his life, and he traded in life for death, righteousness for sin. And Satan, as a result of that, was given dominion over this world to essentially do with it as he pleases, which is why it's such a ridiculous mess. And so for a period of time, Satan is the unofficial prince of this world, using mankind as a tool to strike at the heart of God, playing on our pride and our arrogance to keep us opposed to the will of God. But look how clever God is. Look how shrewd he is. Look how committed to you he is. God did not abandon us when we rebelled against him in sin. Instead, can you imagine God, the creator, the almighty one, entered into this creation and became human like you he stepped into this world held hostage by Satan and actually suffered under the tyrant death. And I can't help but imagine that as Satan saw Christ crucified, he giggled in glee that he had got victory over this God. I can't take you to that verse in Scripture, but I think he believed he had gained the upper hand. But God was clever. God was so shrewd. Who would write a story like this? It's brilliant. Satan played right into his plan. In a sort of mighty sleight of hand, God used Satan's tool for destruction for his purposes of redemption. Death became Christ's servant for your salvation. Satan thought he was getting a good deal. I think the Pharisees and the Romans thought they were winning. Like the customers in the parable, 
when in fact God was actually stealing the glory right from under their nose. Paying for our redemption with the death that he robbed from Satan, who was trying to use it as his tool. And of course, in this, Christ showed us his dedication, his shrewdness, his, his willingness to be committed to you and to me, no matter the cost. In a shrewd and clever move, God took the very instruments of man's ruin and rebellion, and he made them the agents of his atoning death, so that what they intended for evil, God turned inside out for your good. And God can do this very same thing in your life, in whatever difficulty you are currently facing, your grief, he can turn it into joy. Your hardship, he can turn it into glory. Your brokenness, he can turn it into zeal. Your sacrifice, he can turn it into a blessing. So let us also be shrewd. Let us be wise like our great God. Let us commit our whole hearts to him, to his way, to obedience, to serving him. And let us exploit everything that God has given us for the sake of his kingdom. Let us give as much attention to the things of eternity as the people of this world give to things that are perishing so that the name of Jesus might be lifted high and so that in our life many people might see the glory of God and place their faith in him. Let's pray. Father, I don't think that shrewd is often a word we would use to think about the way that you act. But you are indeed powerful in your perception of making right judgments. In fact, all of your ways are perfect. All of your judgments are right and true. And we thank you that you were shrewd in our salvation, committed to redeeming us, so much so that Christ would take on human flesh and suffer death, that our rebellion would be resolved by your grace. We praise you for that. And Lord, I pray that we would be people who imitate you, who reflect this wisdom, this shrewdness, that all of our hearts would be devoted to you, that all that we have would be for the sake of your glory, that we would be wholeheartedly committed to pursuing Christ, and that we would be wise by putting into practice everything that he has commanded us. We thank you for these things. In Christ's name, amen.